Amen. Turn your Bible to Psalms chapter 81. Psalms chapter 81. Thank you, music team. Great, great, great singing tonight. Psalms chapter 81. We are back in the Psalms of Asaph. The topic tonight is worship and listening. Worship and listening. I want to start with the very first five verses of the psalm. We'll jump right in. We'll let the first five verses kind of serve as an introduction uh, to the message tonight. So we begin reading in verse one and we'll stop reading right in the middle of verse five. The Bible says, sing aloud unto God our strength, make a joyful noise unto the God of Jacob. Take a psalm and bring hither the timbrel, the pleasant harp with the psaltery. Blow up the trumpet in the new moon and the time appointed on our solemn feast day for this was a statue for Israel and a law of the God of Jacob. This he ordained in Joseph for a testimony when he went out through the land of Egypt. What I just read is what is known as a call to worship. It's kind of what I did at the beginning of the service tonight. Just read a scripture and kind of got us on the same page and called you to really worship the Lord, both through singing and listening to the word of God. And that's really what Asaph is doing. It's an exciting call to worship, but it's really a specific call to worship because he's talking about the call to worship at the Feast of the Tabernacles. If you'll notice there at verse three, it says, blow up the trumpet in the new moon in the time appointed on our solemn feast day. Feast of the Tabernacles was one of the uh, several festive feasts that the Jews would participate in throughout the calendar year. The Feast of the Tabernacles lasted seven days. What would happen is the Jews would travel toward Jerusalem. Once they got there, they would build these small grass huts to dwell in for seven days. They would, of course, sing songs and read, read psalms and pray prayers and enjoy fellowship. And they would sleep in these self-made grass huts. They did this for seven days, the Feast of the Tabernacles, to remind them of how God provided for them in the wilderness. Do you remember that? God took them out of Egyptian bondage, but before they got to the promised land, they had to wander in the wilderness for many years. And along that journey, God provided for them every step of the way. So, so sleeping inside these grass huts brought them back to that point of thankfulness and gratitude and remembrance. And so Asaph is, is, is no doubt writing this psalm with that moment of worship in mind. And he says, hey, when you go there, I want you to sing loud. I like that. Sing loud. I want you to make a joyful noise. He says, man, I want you to strike up the band. I want the entire orchestra to come. I want it to be corporate worship. In verse four, this wasn't even an option. If you're a Jew, this is commanded. This is a statue of the Lord. Now, now I want to make a quick point and then we're going to really get into it that, that this call of worship being attached to a specific event in Israel's history, it makes the point to us today that our worship like theirs, it really should be a regular response to what God has done in our life. So when we come together as a church for corporate worship on a Sunday morning, a Sunday night, a Wednesday night, it would be very easy, would it not, for us to get in a routine, to show up, to sing, to shake a hand or two, to serve, to give, to pray, go home and come back the next time and do it. What we've got to realize is that every time we gather for worship, it's a very special call to worship. 
It's an opportunity for us to corporately, we get to do this on, by ourselves individually on a daily basis, but only three times a week do we get to come together corporately to reflect together on what God's done for us, how he's provided for our needs, how he's answered our prayers, how he saved our soul. And then together we get to worship him out loud as a response to his goodness in our lives. There should be nothing ordinary about this. Are you with me? I'm not asking you to come to church and build a grass hut to live in. But, but there ought to be nothing ordinary about gathering in the freedom we get to gather in and singing praises to God and hearing his word preached and praying together and dropping off our kiddos to be lovingly cared for and taught the gospel at every corner of this building. That is a privilege, church. What you're doing in this place right now is, is not your right. It's your privilege. And it's my privilege, and we got to treat it as that. That's the call to worship. And, I, and Brother Daniel, I'm thinking this. I'm thinking, finally, in the prayers of Asaph, we get something positive. Because it's been sad up to this point. The temple's been burnt to the ground. Babylonians, this powerful military force is making show of God's people. There's, there's a bloody mess in the streets. Every psalm is lament. I thought, finally, we get an awesome call to worship. But then you begin reading and it's like, nope. It takes a turn, an abrupt turn. It, Asaph is writing the inspiration of God. And it's so God does this. He says, I love your zeal and worship. I love the call to worship. I'm with you on that. But Asaph, give me your pen for a second because it's time for me to talk. I, I, they've been asking God to talk for several psalms now. And they, they've been lamenting to God. And it's those God says, Asaph, let me see your pen. I'm going to start lamenting to you. And I'm going to start lamenting to my people. And what God has to say isn't necessarily positive because God's going to point out a problem with their worship. And the problem had nothing to do with what they were singing, how they were playing their instruments, or really with anything they were doing out loud in their worship. God's disapproval of their worship had more to do with what they weren't doing. They weren't listening. They were inattentive. The people of God would travel to Jerusalem every year. They would camp out for seven days and in self-denial in this act of worship, they would live in this self-made grass hut. They would sing their songs. They would, they would prepare and rehearse and play their instruments. They would make a lot of noise. But all the while they failed to realize that worship doesn't just involve their singing or their playing or their serving or their praying. Worship also involves listening. Worship also involves sitting still and saying and doing nothing but letting God talk and letting his word get into our heart. And so God begins to lament. And, and, and you know what the theme of his complaint is? It's found in verse 8, verse 11, and verse 13. It's the same theme. Look at it. Hear, O my people, and I will testify unto thee, O Israel, if that will hearken unto me. Verse 11. But my people, he's lamenting would not hearken to my voice. And Israel would none of me. Verse 13. Oh, that my people had hearkened unto me. And Israel walked in my way. Clearly, God's people wouldn't listen to him. I want this to sink in. They would sing to him. They would travel to Jerusalem to play for him. They would cry out to him. They've done that since Psalm 73. 
but they wouldn't listen to him. Now follow me. This is really ironic that God calls them out for not listening to him. Because all throughout Asaph's Psalms up to this point, they've called God out for not listening to them. Have you been studying with me the last several weeks? That's what, they're, that, that's what they've been doing. I'll show you. Look at chapter 74 and verse 1. Oh God, why hast thou cast us off forever? They're lamenting. They're complaining. Why doth thine anger smoke against the sheep of thy pasture? Look at the, verse 10 of that chapter. Oh God, how long shall the adversary reproach? Shall the enemy blaspheme thy name forever? Why withdrawest thou hand, even thy right hand? Pluck it out of thy bosom. Goes on in chapter 77. Will the Lord cast off forever? Will he be favorable no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Does his promise fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in the anger shut up his tender mercies? Continues in chapter 79. How long, O Lord, will thou be angry forever? Shall thy jealousy burn like fire? Chapter 80, verse 1. Give ear. In other words, listen for once, God. We're singing song after song. We're crying out prayer after prayer where you're helpless sheep and you're like this angry shepherd that keeps ignoring us. And now God cries out to them. And he says this, hold up. I'm not the one with the hearing problem. You're the one with the hearing problem. I don't need hearing aids. You need hearing aids. And he proves it in verse 5 through 7. He says, I've always been capable and have proven that I will listen to you. Look at what he says in the last part of verse 5. Where I heard a language, talking about in the land of Egypt, I heard a language that I understood not. We could go back to Exodus, but the people of God cried out. I don't even know if they knew who they were crying out to, but God heard them. And verse 6, I removed his shoulder from the burden. His hands were delivered from the pot. You know what that's talking about? God says, when I heard you cry out, you, you were doing all this forced slave labor, carrying all these baskets and these bricks and all these heavy pots. And I saw that. You cried out. I delivered you from that. Verse 7, thou callest in trouble and I deliver thee. I answered thee in the secret place of thunder. It's talking about Mount Sinai and the leadership of Moses. I proved thee at the waters of Meribah in the wilderness when they had nothing. God said, you, call, you have called out to me in all these different times in history. And before you ever even knew who you were crying out to, I answered. He says, I'm not the one with the hearing problem. You're the one with the hearing problem. And that's why they found themselves in exile. Because they plugged their ears to God. Now watch this. They didn't stop worshiping. They didn't stop traveling to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Tabernacles. All the while they're worshiping with their voices, they were failing to listen to God with their ears. And this was the pattern for them. I want you to look closely at this verse in Isaiah. It's several verses here. I think it's verse 10 through uh, chapter 1, verse 10 through 15. But look at this. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I, delete, I delight not in the blood of bullocks or lambs or of he goats. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts, bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me, the new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. I cannot away with it, it is iniquity. Even the solemn meeting. Your new moons, we're talking about the Feast of the Tabernacles here, and your appointed feast, my soul hateth. 
Can you, can you bear that? Can you, can you get that? God's saying, you travel all the way to Jerusalem, build a grass hut, you play amazing instruments, you sing amazing vocal uh, renditions and praise and all of these things. You cry out fancy prayers. But what did God say? I hate them. I hate them. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. I think that's it. Yeah, verse 15. Now, here's what's crazy to me. They didn't stop giving. They didn't stop serving. They didn't stop going to church. But God got to the point where he actually detested their worship. Couldn't stand their feast, their prayers. Why? Because all the while they're singing, all the while they're playing, all the while they're serving, all the while they're giving, they're going just like this. Everything on the outside says I love you until God tells them something they don't like. And they won't listen. I want to park here before I move on in the psalm because I think a lot of us do the same thing. Now we come to church, we go through the motions, we participate in the singing, we give our offerings, we cry out to God with our voices, but through it all, we refuse to hear God's word to us. Now we expect God to be attentive to us, don't we? But we aren't willing to be attentive to him. Some of you have employers like that and it frustrates you. They expect you to listen to them, but they won't listen to you. Some of you have friendships like that. You let them vent to you, but the moment you start venting, they don't want any of it. It's a one way communication. Some of you in a marriage like that. Where, where you'll listen to your spouse whenever they want to talk. But if you want to talk, it takes everything just to get them to put down their phone for five minutes. Some parents are like that. They expect their child to almost to assume the posture of a soldier when they're talking. But yet it takes their child saying their name 10 times before they pay attention to him. And we do the same thing with God. We sing to him. We do it loudly and enthusiastically. We play our instruments for him. We find much pleasure in doing so. We expect him to inhabit our praise. We pray and we expect his undivided attention and attentiveness to our request. We do all the communicating. But when God wants to communicate to us through this word, he can't get our attention. What does that look like? I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like a lot of energy during the singing time, but no energy during the preaching time. That's what it looks like. I've yet in my 15 years of ministry seen anybody fall asleep when they're, when they're singing. Ever. Even if we're sitting down and singing, it doesn't happen. But the moment you open up the word of life, it's like snooze fest. I, I, I'm just, we, we need to park here for just a second because there are a lot of people that fall asleep when I preach my guts out. I mean, a lot. I mean, every service, there's like 10 or 12 and the same people. Now, listen closely. I'm not being judgmental at all. Everybody has long days. All of that. Please hear me. Please hear me. I don't deserve, I do not deserve as a man your respect. This Bible deserves all of your respect. And listen, we, we need to figure out a way to stay tuned in. Like figure it out. Take notes. Sit up straight, come to the front row. Figure it out. This is the bread of life. So you're going to raise your hands 
and say amen and worship and cry and worship. And the moment the words open, you'll fall asleep. There's something wrong with that. I'm thinking God is looking down and saying, you want me to listen to you and inhabit your praise? But the moment I start speaking to you, you're not interested. All of a sudden you had too long a day to stay awake. You can go to the cafe and chum it up all day long. But the moment God speaks, there's just no energy. There's no enthusiasm. There's no panting. If there was panting, there would be alertness. Oh, Tyler, you're meddling. Now, I'm not meddling. I'm not meddling. This is, the, this is the word of life. Why does it get less of our energy than other forms of worship? Why does it get less of our attentiveness than other forms of worship? It's a shame. Yeah. It's almost like we compartmentalize worship, don't we? Like worship ends when singing ends. No, listening to God is a, is a precious form of worship. It's a holy form of worship. It's a privilege for God to speak to us. Again, I don't deserve an ounce of your respect when I speak. I am a sinner like you're a sinner. You pinch me, it hurts, and I'll probably say a bad word like you would. We're on level playing ground. I stand up here, but not because I'm better. I deserve nothing of your respect. Nothing. I mean that with all my heart. But the word of God and God's voice through it deserves it. Deserves it. When I say attentive, I, I don't mean just like hearing it. I mean listening to it with the intent to obey it. See, our problem as was Israel's problem is not that we don't hear God's word with our ears. We just don't listen to God's word with the intent to obey it with our lives. Look at verse 8 through 11. Hear, O my people, and I will testify unto thee, O Israel, if that will hearken unto me. There shall no strange God be in thee. He's talking about the very first commandment out of 10. There shall no strange God be in thee, neither shalt thou worship any strange God. He's told them this before. I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Open thy mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people, can you hear God lamenting? Broken hearted? They wouldn't hearken to my voice and Israel would none of me. None of me. God said, man, from the very beginning, I chose you out of Egypt for crying out loud. You were carrying these pots on your shoulders. You're in the burning heat all day long. Generation after generation, you just died as slaves. And all of a sudden, I had compassion for you and I delivered you out of that. And all I told you was, was just a few simple rules. Keep me number one. I want to be your one and only, not your one of many. I delivered you. I'm your God and I'm a jealous God. Is that too much to expect? And his people, generation after generation after generation, just would not listen and they became idolaters. And I, I just wonder how many of us tonight have an outward form of worship to God. But when he speaks to you about things like idolatry in your own life, you really don't listen. I'm not saying you won't sing the songs and you won't come to your ministry and serve. I'm not saying you won't be doing enthusiastically. I'm not saying that you have a bad attitude. Nothing like that. 
But it's those, those hidden idols of the heart that God keeps speaking to you about and you just keep plugging your ears. You do everything else right on the outside. But on the inside, there's just things you won't listen to God about. Like when he speaks to you through his word about the false God of materialism and how stuff and money and lavish trips have become your ultimate source of release and happiness above him. You hear it, but there's no change. When God speaks to you about how you've made a false idol out of another person in your life or the idea of another person in your life and you can't be, a, you can't be happy without being attached to that relationship, you hear his word, but you keep going back to the idol. When God speaks to you about how you've made work a false God in your life and, and how you're in over your head with how many commitments at work that you've placed above him and his house, you hear it, but there's no change. When God speaks to you about the disproportionate desire for success, you crave affirmation and promotion from your boss or your company more than you crave it from God. You hear his still small voice pricking your heart about that, but there's no change. When God speaks to you about the God you've made out of your own comfort, it shows up in how you'll dodge anything that God calls you to do that's uncomfortable or hard or requires any sacrifice. It shows up in how, how you nearly quit on God every time something bad happens in your life. It shows up in how much your attitude is affected by unexpected challenges that come your way. You hear God speaking to your heart, but there's no change. And it's not that our disobedience alone is what breaks the heart of God. Don't miss this. What really causes him to lament is that we think we can cover it all up with our outward forms of worship. So long as we do verses one through five, we got our timbrel. We got our song. We got our hands in the air. We got our clappy clappy. We're serving. We're on time. We're, we're reliable. We're faithful. Look at my given record, pastor. It's faithful, man. It's generous. It's honest. But you still got an idol inside of here. If our worship is accompanied by, if it's not accompanied by listening ears and obedience to God's word, hear me, he detests our worship. I showed you in Isaiah. Let me show you in 1 Samuel 15. Samuel said, half the Lord is great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices. You know what that means? Your, your offerings, your service, your prayer, your, all these churchy things. Does he have as much delight in that as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to hearken than the fat of rams. Our worship means very little to God when it consists primarily of us doing all the serving, all the giving, but no listening or obeying. We get the cart before the horse. So long as I show up to church, I'm good. So long as I'm in choir on Wednesday nights, I'm good. Back to choir at five o'clock on Sunday afternoons, I'm good. So long as I give my faith promise missions, I give my tithe, I'm good. So long as I'm back there in the media booth, I'm good. I'm back there in the sound booth, I'm good. I'm back there greeting when it's my time, I'm good. So long as I'm good on the outside and we use that, I say it intentionally, I think it's almost intentional sometimes. We're just numb to the fact that we're using that as a cover-up for these hidden idols of the heart. It's true. And we go home feeling good about ourselves because we did our ministry. 
Because we sang our song, we played our instrument, we prayed our prayer. We helped the kid learn about Jesus. We wore our Sunday best. We came to Sunday, our connection group, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. We get four stickers on the chart that week. We're good. You're not good if you're an idolater. I don't care how good your song sounds. I don't care how good my sermon is. I don't don't care how good you are at what you do in Fellowship Baptist Church, how faithful you are, how long you've been doing it. If you're a disobedient Christian, God says your worship means nothing. Yeah. And if we keep going through those motions, the outcome's not going to be good. Look at verse 11 and 12. But my people would not hearken to my voice, and Israel would not of me. So I gave them up unto their own heart's lust. They walked in their own counsels. Dad, it sounds like Romans 1, doesn't it? Paul says that God gave them up to their own uncleanness, their own vile affections, own reprobate mind. See, here's what happens. Please get this. When we refuse to listen to God for long enough and decide rather to walk in our own counsels and according to our own lust, we don't stop coming to church. It's just those little idols of the heart, those little things we want our way. We just stop listening to God about it or any avenue through which God speaks to us. And here's what will eventually happen. God will stop contending with you and just let you have your way. Now, at first, that sounds like, it. okay, I'll take that. That's actually the worst form of judgment ever. I would rather, you just study, study your Bible. I would much rather for God to put me in the belly of a well than for God to let me go on in a reprobate mind are given over to my own lust because I refuse to listen to him along the way. And what's crazy, it's the people that traveled all the way to Jerusalem, slept in grass huts for seven days, read and sang psalms to God, wore their Sunday best, on time for church, sticker chart was full. It's these people It's not the person that's that's a drunk in the gutter. It's not the person at the bar on Saturday. We're not talking about that. We're talking about saved people that go to church week in and week out. These are the people that just stopped listening to God. They didn't stop doing outward things. They just stopped having listening ears. That's scary to me. That is scary to me. I'm speaking to a crowd tonight that loves church. You're looking at a preacher right now that if we could have church every day, I'd be here. If we could have a worship service of some type every day, I'd be there. I just love the church world. Of course, it's my life. But even before that, I just love it. I love being here. But that poses a danger. It does. Because we can get into a spot where what we do on the outside is a compensation for what we left undone on the inside. And what we are is we are rebel worshipers. Do you hear me? We are rebel worshipers. And so here's what God does. In his grace, he gives you a sermon. And he says, listen. Or in his grace, he, he sends a connection group leader or a spiritual mentor or how about this, a spouse? 
confront you about something, you understand that that's not always just a nagging spouse. Sometimes that's the voice of God. Working through somebody to speak to your heart, sir, your heart, ma'am, but we just plug our ears because, oh, they're just nagging again. Oh, it's just my parents that just keep getting on me, keep riding me, expect too much out of me. And we just keep plugging the ears. And so God sends a little storm your way, a little trial your way. He shakes you a little bit. You understand that a lot of times in those storms, it's God's voice. That's his grace. Prodigal son, he sent a famine. Jonah, before the well ever got there, there was a storm that shook the boat. See, God sends you these things, shake you a little bit. That's his grace. There's always a storm before a well. There's always a, a famine before, before a, a pig farm. Right? And when God does it, we just, we just continue like that. And we come back on Sunday night and we go like that. Come back on Wednesday, we go like that. Oh, we love the singing. And if we like the message, we find our way down to an altar even. It's just, it's just back there, this, this little idol tucked back in the nook and cranny of our heart that we won't deal with. Guess what? God sees it. And God sees every idol that's tucked beneath this fancy sport coat tonight too. Because I can't hide behind this pulpit and act like I've never been a rebel preacher. No, in my 14 years of preaching and big old whopping six months of pastoring, I have stood behind the pulpit and idolater. I've stood behind the pulpit and tried to mask and it's not like I'm getting up there saying, yeah, I got, I got to put on this show. I'm not thinking that way. I'm just, I'm so robotic in my worship, so robotic in my outward forms and demonstrations that I do at church, that, that, that sometimes that enthusiasm, that passion, that regularity, that frequency can just kind of overshadow some things that I need to deal with. Things as a husband, things as a son, things as a leader. Things as an under-shepherd in our church. Ways in which I finance or steward my finances. My emotions, my anger. These are the things that if I'm not careful, I'll write a fancy sermon about. And I'll stand behind a pulpit of wood and I'll herald it loudly like I am tonight. And I'll expect all of you to come to an altar and lay your idols there, but I'll keep them hidden under my fancy suit. I'm just telling you how this psalm has lit me up. It's convicted me. And we are all prone. You're here on a Wednesday night. You're like the frozen chosen tonight. You had to choose to be here because you want to be. And I'm thankful for it. But that puts us in a very vulnerable spot. Because we will walk in and out week after week, rebel worshipers. And we will fool ourselves into thinking God's okay with it. Why? Because we felt good in worship. We made a difference serving. I preached a good message. God used it. And so all of that is a cover up. The devil uses it subtly. To make us feel better about the hidden idols of our heart. You understand God doesn't want to give you up into your own heart's lust. He doesn't want that. And that's how he ends the psalm. Look at these verses. Go there, Kale. Oh, that my people had hearkened to me and Israel walked in my ways. 
I should soon have subdued their enemies and turned my hand against their adversaries. Verse 15, the haters of the Lord should have submitted themselves unto him, but their time should have endured forever. He should have fed them also with the finest of the wheat and with the honey out of the rock. Should I have satisfied thee? Here's what God's saying. Oh, what could have been? If you would have just listened, I would have blessed you with two things, the two things you needed, protection and provision. I would have defeated your enemies and I would have gave you the finest of wheat and the sweetest of honey. And I wonder if God's saying that about any of us tonight. Oh, if they just would have listened. They came to church. It's not that they stopped coming to church entirely. They just stopped listening about certain things in their life. I tried to speak to them through their spouse and they went like this. I tried to speak to them through their preacher and they went like this. I tried to speak to them through their kids and they went like this. I tried to shake their life up and they went like this and just said, oh, life gets hard sometimes, I guess. Oh, what could have been? I wanted to protect them from their enemies. Not from the Assyrians or the Babylonians, but from the enemies of discontentment and anger and lust and jealousy and unforgiveness. I wanted to, I wanted to lead them in victory over those things, but now I've got to lead them to those things. I've got to let anger destroy that relationship. And I've got to let jealousy and envy drive them insane emotionally. And I've got to let greed cause them to go bankrupt. And I've got to let bitterness sour their marriage. And I've got to let lust destroy their purity. Oh, I would have subdued those enemies, but they wouldn't listen. And oh, I wanted to provide for them. God says, I have so much honey for you. I have so much wheat for you. God's not up in heaven saying, oh, I can't wait for them to take the wrong step so I can pull the honey away from them. He's saying, please do the right thing so I can pour honey on you. Please do the right thing so I can put wheat into your oven. Oh, please, just give me a reason to bless you. And he's so patient, but eventually he says, no, honey. He eventually says, no wheat. No provision. They will feel a distance from me. No showers of blessing. They can go to their feast of the tabernacle still. They can do their calls to worship still. They can sing in the choir. They can serve in their ministry. They can give an offering. They can look good and feel good when they're doing it. But deep down inside, they're going to be craving honey that I won't give them. They're going to be craving wheat that I won't give them. They're going to know it. And it's almost like it's a cliffhanger. Did they listen? We don't know. Maybe it's a cliffhanger because it poses the question to us. Will you listen? Will you listen before he pulls out the honey? Will you listen before he says no more wheat? Will will you listen while he wants to help you subdue your enemies? Will you listen while he's still speaking? Or will you continue to go through the outward forms of worship week after week? Come in an idolater, leave an idolater. Come in an idolater, leave 
and idolater. Let me ask you a series of questions and I'll be done. Is it possible that you're in the habit of regular worship to God through singing, giving, serving, and praying, but not listening and obeying? Is it possible that you're trying to cover up a disobedient life with a loud song or a faithful ministry or a generous gift? Is it possible that you look like a worshiper on the outside, but you're really an idolater on the inside? Is it possible tonight that you sing really good, you serve really good, you give really good, but you don't listen very good? Is it possible that while you think you're bringing joy to God's heart through your outward forms of worship, you're actually bringing lament and sorrow to his heart through your inward forms of idolatry? If that's the case, God, he actually detests any form of worship you're giving him. And he rejects it. Because at the end of the day, he wants your obedience more than your sacrifice. What do I do, Brother Tyler? Do I just stop worshiping until I can get it right? Nope. You get right. You keep worshiping, but you, you get it right. You give God the idol of your heart right here at an altar. And you do what I taught on Sunday night if you were here. You go make radical amputations. And you go make big shifts and big changes to give God a space to change your heart. But it begins with humbling yourself at an altar and saying, God, that's me. I could have everybody fooled right now, but I know and you know the thing I keep ignoring you about. And with your grace and with your help, I want to hearken to your voice. And I want to listen. I don't want to be a rebel worshiper anymore. Would you stand to your feet, every head bowed and every eye closed?